Tonight I want to talk about the <clears throat> how the wisdom of emptiness is naturally expressed as compassion, really the unity of emptiness and compassion as wisdom, really. <clears throat> so a lot of what's been talked about the last uh, couple of evenings and what's been coming up in a lot of people's practice at times is just seeing the sense of how so how he talked about last night, and even though I wasn't here, I kind of know what he talked about because I'm psychic. No, I'm kidding. Because <laughs> he told me, obviously. But um, the sense is just this, 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 you know? No past, no future, no reference outside. And the, um, our habitual mind, our linear logical, rational mind, the way we think about stuff and our habits, um, don't tend to not find the idea or our projection of what the experience and what life would be like if we were living from the understanding of no self, if we're living from within the uh, wisdom of emptiness that often the mind, the intellect, projects not such a lovely idea of that. Words people have used to me are um, alien, disconnected, inhuman. What Chungpa calls, you have a kind of a nostalgia for samsara. You know, I'd rather be caught in my stupid patterns, but at least it's me doing it, and I'm familiar with it. (laughs) Uncaring, or this kind of fear of, a dry, gray kind of emptiness where you can't tell the difference between beautiful and scary, where you don't care if you have peanut butter or sauerkraut, you know, that it doesn't (laughs) really matter. And on the, uh, I wouldn't say positive side, but on another side of that is the somewhat where we taste, and we do all taste, really the, the freedom, the liberation of emptiness and of course, for all of us, it's not complete all at once. And there's a way that then the thinking rational mind can own that, again, making a, a description of it that is no longer the living experience. And that's the kind of emptiness where, well, you can tell. I don't know what I just said, peanut butter from sauerkraut or whatever I said. You can tell the difference. But really, nothing matters. It's all empty, so what I do doesn't matter. And in some way, those are the words we use, you know. Awareness doesn't care. And we turn that into, yeah, nothing matters, so whatever I do. And that's also a real misunderstanding, a misconception. It's what sometimes uh, the Tibetans call falling into emptiness. I just want to read a couple of things about, from that, from Nyoshal Ken. And this is uh, actually can be quite subtle. And it can be a place we hit in our lifetime of practice. Remember, we're always, you know, looking at it from a certain angle. As long as we don't stop here and think this is it. The danger in falling into emptiness is that we hear too much too soon. We think we have understood shunyata, emptiness, and we err on the side of the absolute in a nihilistic fashion. And we are obscured by concepts concepts of emptiness. Nagarjuna said, it is sad to see those who mistakenly believe in material concrete reality, but far more pitiful 
are those who believe in emptiness. <laughs> Let me give you Stephen Batchelor's translation of that. Buddhas, this is Nagarjuna, Buddhas say emptiness is relinquishing opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. <laughs> Back to Nyoshal Ken. Those who believe in things can be helped through various kinds of practice, through the way of skillful means. But those who have fallen into the abyss of emptiness find it almost impossible to reemerge, since there seem to be no handholds, no steps, no gradual progression, and nothing to do. And, I mean, you can hear all the spiritual stuff that's around. You can just sometimes hear how, at times, anything that you read, and we just read snippets, you know, and we're not following someone or some path the whole way, where it just says that nothing matters, there's nothing to do, there's nothing to have, there's nothing to be, Buddha Dasa, right? And when we take that and make it a concept, well, there's nothing to have, there's nothing to do, there's nothing to be. You guys are saying it. Whatever's happening, just notice it. It's fine. It doesn't matter, right? There's a piece of that that's accurate, but when we turn it into a view, we've fallen into that abyss. Okay, now don't be afraid of that. Because what I'm saying, wanting to say with the unity of emptiness and compassion is that the, the, the real moments of trustworthy, let's put it that way, trustworthy glimpses, experiences, understandings of the emptiness or the non-separateness of things, the, the sense of compassion or um, tenderness of heart, as Pema Chodron puts it, nat- are the natural effects, the natural respond, that we respond appropriately. And so that's something we can kind of check out in ourselves. I'll give you an example. This is from, well, Stephen Batchelor writing about Shanti Deva, who wrote The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which is one of uh, the Dalai Lama's favorite writings. And Stephen should know about it since he translated it from the Tibetan many years ago. And he's writing about it in his preface to his translation of Nagarjuna. So, anyway, he's saying, when Shanti Deva, who is this great bodhisattva, when his closed sense of self dissolved, closed, that's really what it's like. Tsugmi says, you know, we're like, we're closed in this trap of our emotions and thoughts and personality. And here we sit, day in and day out, you know, in this little, closed in. So when Shanti Deva's closed sense of self dissolved, he did not vanish into the abyss of nothingness, right? He did not. But what happened is he saw that to be empty is no longer to be full of oneself. And that's what's so exhausting. It's quite a few people actually have mentioned in the last few days, just on the listening to Winnie's talk and Howie's talk, talk some people are saying, oh, I'm just seeing every thought about me and my stories and my views. And, oh, it's so exhausting, right? It takes a lot of energy to maintain this little cage that we're sitting in, our ideas of ourself. But when that dissolves, we don't go into nothingness. We, I want you to listen to this, this not exactly a poem, but the how he read last night. Hear it again, this nun, this, this Zen nun, from 
the sense of how the openness into emptiness of any separate self is the same as compassion. See if you can hear how that, or maybe you don't, maybe it's only me, but see if you can get a sense of how these two things go together. He was reading this last night. Tagitsu saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on, stronger than the cane that she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. That's, we don't fall into the abyss of nothingness. We actually fall, we realize we are the midst of everything. And the inescapable, natural response of that is the tenderness of heart, of, of metta, of compassion. It's an aspect of wisdom, appropriate response when response is needed. This is, again, um, Stephen Batchelor talking about Shantideva. For his insight into emptiness does not merely change the way he views the world, but it also transforms the way he feels about it, about the world. His heart is opened to the anguish of others, which prompts a spontaneous longing to assuage their suffering which is really the seed of bodhicitta. But it's not a kind of, you know, crazy disconnected longing. Stephen says he, could, he also acknowledged Shantideva, the irrational nature of such a passion, knowing that just being relatively a limited person, there's no way I can assuage the suffering of all beings. I don't even know myself. That's what he said. But still, that's the natural effect of opening to emptiness falling into the midst of everything. And as I said, it's natural. When we see how much of our energy, our thoughts, our emotions are so self-referential and how it really does create this, this limiting separation that seems so real only because being recreated moment to moment in the mind. The self-referential sense, and just to notice it, not to stop it, just to notice it. It's just another thing to notice. Sony Rinpoche describes it in a way that I personally really love because it's it's kind of vivid. He says that um, this felt sense of me, not, not an intellectual idea, not talking about ego and this and that, but just as you're sitting here, the felt sense of me, right? Can you connect with that? No, because there's no me. No, can you connect? (laughs) It's not any big whoop. It's just a little, uh, you know. But that, he said, that's like the original yardstick of samsara. He said it's like in Tibet when they're making the, the, the footprint to make the foundation for a house. They start from a point in the middle, and, you know, they have like a long, like a string of however wide it's going to be. And they, from that point in the middle, they measure with that string all the way around, and you get like the footprint of the house. So that referential center point that everything's referring back to, he's saying, that's the sense of me when it's arising 
and we don't quite realize it is he calls that the, the yardstick for samsara. Our job is just to notice it, not to try and get rid of it, but just notice it. When we don't notice it, that becomes the seed for all this incredible energy that goes into creating and maintaining what we wish we didn't have to create and maintain, and we're trying so hard to get rid of it, but I'm still trying so hard to get rid of it, and I'm creating, and we forget to notice this little sense of me. And when we think about it not being there, it's really scary. Back to that sense of a fall into the void of nothingness. Because the mind can only know what it already knows. And what it already knows is severely limited. So that's why we're always talking about trust. So this relentless, obsessive, exhausting self-referencing. Quite a few of you have, have mentioned just noticing just a moment sometime it's not there. And it's like people have said, my gosh, my gosh, it's just like, it's, I didn't realize how exhausting this burden is. And then it comes back. You know, you want to shoot yourself. But then when it comes back, you don't have to take that personally either. You don't have to take it personally. But so when just in that moment, that, that self-referencing isn't the center of the world, then we do like Tagitsu, we fall into the midst of everything. And what naturally awakens is the way that um, Tema Chodron calls it, is this um, tenderness for life, tenderness for beings. The way she describes bodhicitta is she calls it noble or awakened heart. And this bodhicitta, this tenderness for life, awakens naturally without our doing when we can no longer shield ourselves from the vulnerability of our condition, from the basic fragility of existence. When the pain of the world touches your heart and it naturally turns into compassion. It's really not something we have to do. I have to be the compassionate one. Not that we can't incline the mind, and I'll get there later. But um, at this aspect, no, I just want to keep pointing out to how the, the recognition on a deep level, cellular level, even though it comes and goes, of emptiness, of, of not sep- no self, not separate self, That is the basis for what Stephen Batchelor calls a spontaneous, empathetic responsiveness. Or he actually calls it, emptiness is the basic for the ethics of empathetic responsiveness. And this is how Shanti Davis says that, very basic. When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. It's just like feeding myself. I hope for nothing in return. Just like feeding myself. Again, back to Shanti Deva again. Stephen says, as long as when he realized that this idea of a separate self was just an idea, but when we're caught in that, that cage we create, then is this is from Stephen again, the spontaneous concern for others. It does arise. You know, we all feel some compassion, spontaneous concern for others. But when we're in the midst of that, you know, house created by the yardstick of samsara, then that spontaneous concern for others, it's limited, right? It's felt for those who fall within the range of what is mine. 
me and mine and those I love and those I can let in somehow, that it's safe. The pain of those outside this range can or may be treated with indifference, a disconnect, or on occasions we're even kind of happy to see someone else suffer. What goes away is this range of inside-outside. It's just like having fed myself, you know. I look for nothing in return because there's not this boundary that we only care about what's within it. Now, the other side, though, for the vastness of compassion, also the vastness requires wisdom. So just as the wisdom of emptiness is naturally, you can tell it's trustworthy when it has the compassion, the the non-separation aspect, the natural tenderness, which could manifest in many different ways. But people know it. Many people have described it. You can tell it's not indifferent. It's not disconnected. It's not, oh, who gives a, you know, it's really there. But in the same way, the vastness of real compassion, deep compassion, is only possible with the, uh, the wisdom of emptiness, of no separate self. It really requires that. Our, our intellectual and really heartfelt, sincere wish to be compassionate and understanding of it and having that as an intention, a goal, that's really useful. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that's not helpful. It's wonderful because it will incline our mind towards more wisdom and the more wisdom will incline our heart towards more compassion. But you can see the limits of acting from compassion when it's not married, when it's not really met by the depth of wisdom because we just... We don't have all the information, in a way. We're still looking from within the self-interest, trying our best, but we don't, we don't realize how narrow that little box is. I heard a great example. Well, to me, it's an example. Maybe I'm stretching it a bit. But I heard this on the radio in the fall, I think. Uh, it was actually an economist talking about the, the economic theories that, that if you act on rational self-interest, it'll be for the good of everybody, which already we can see that's doesn't sound so great in Buddhist terms. But anyway, the example he gave, I loved, that uh, he said there was recently, I don't know how recent, in the last few years, some new bridge that was built in London over the Thames. I don't know if it was a footbridge or also a car, but he was talking about foot traffic on this bridge right after it had opened. And so many hundreds of people were walking across this bridge. And it was new, but it started really shaking and trembling, I guess particularly on one side, which, you know, not so great. It just opened. So all these people, it started shaking and trembling. So each person did what seemed like for themselves the rational thing to do, which was they moved to the other side from where the shaking was. But everybody did that because everyone was just acting in their own, you know, little world of rational self-interest. So all several hundred people all moved to the other side, which of course made the whole thing, you know, a million times worse. So you get the sense. We do what seems appropriate, logical, useful, but without the wisdom we can't see past. We don't even take in the big picture, you know, without consciously thinking, oh yeah, let me think, what should, you know, it's just because we're, we're limited in space and time, what Einstein called the optical delusion, you know, of separation in space and time of ourselves. 
So the wisdom of emptiness allows for clear seeing, accurate recognition of the bigger picture. Not everything. We're not going to always have all the information, but a much bigger seeing of what's going on, which allows for more possibility of an appropriate response. And another, another aspect of how the, the emptiness is essential for the vastness of compassion is what so many, we all probably feel at many times, which is when we really are, the tenderness, the suffering, the fragility of the world is touching our heart. We do feel quite deeply and sincerely that tenderness for beings, for ourselves, for others. And we can be with it a while, and then suddenly it's like, you know, we're drowning. It's too much. And God knows there's so much suffering in the world once we start opening to it all. And the question, as it often comes up in my mind, and as many people I've heard say, is how can I stay open to the suffering in this world? Or how can I hold all the suffering? And in the question itself, you can see the seed of the problem. I can't. It's not about me as a separate being holding some concept of all the suffering in the world. It's no separate me anyway. There's no one to hold it, and there's no where for it to be It's just arising and passing, arising and passing, arising and passing. The rational mind says, but that's negating suffering. No, it's not. But the sense that I have to hold it is exactly where we drown. It's not possible. And we'll all come to that place many times, not to judge it. But at that point, see, oh, wow. Feel the, the constriction, the overwhelmingness, the overpoweringness of that sense of trying to hold it all and just bring compassion to that. That's all. Don't try to figure out emptiness, but oh, wow, this is unbearable right now. Unbearable feels like this. Serious. Ajahn Sumedho has a great line he would say a lot. He was talking about something different, something unpleasant, sweating through his robes in Thailand or something. But I keep remembering this line he said. He said, I'd be with it so long. It'd be just unbearable, unbearable. I think this is unbearable. I can't bear it another moment. And then I'd find that I could. Because that's just a moment. This is unbearable. When I feel that, then I go, what's actually so unbearable about this moment? You know, and it turns the awareness in, and it starts looking again, and it's usually, okay, that was a mood. I can't bear it, but that's an aside. So when I said, when you're feeling like, "I I can't bear this, how can I hold it? It's too much, the suffering of the world. This is exactly the place where we begin to and continue to learn how to recognize, cultivate, and strengthen compassion in our own experience, here, now, this moment. So the Dalai Lama says in talking about, you know, the cultivation, the development, really, of bodhicitta, this noble or awakened heart, and he's saying um, that how does it develop? It develops through deep insight into what suffering is. Not what you wanted to hear, is it? Deep insight into what suffering is. And this arises by being present with, opening into our own experience. This is from the Dalai Lama. This is where we start. 
and he didn't say, but as some people say, each of us, the suffering of our own personal, and yes, we, you know, we're still in the realm of the personal, the relative, the conventional, the absolute, they go together, one doesn't negate the other. The conventional me suffering here, now, this is the place compassion can begin, that wisdom develops, that we recognize the emptiness, the falling into the midst of everything, nowhere else. And he goes on to say, by focusing, by being with our own experience, this is how in the bodhicitta begins to develop, and then the compassion strengthens as it moves into a sense of empathy, of connectedness with other beings. And this is what so all of us at different times experience. Not all the time. I'm not saying every moment of our practice should be opening into the experience of deep suffering. Definitely not. All different kinds of things happen. So, you know, if that's not your experience now, don't you know, go out of here thinking there's something wrong. I should be suffering. You'll have your chance. Don't worry. <laughs> but sometimes other things are developed. It's moving in many ways. But quite a few people just in the last couple of days in interviews are um, in different ways and following different routes are finding themselves in the middle of some kind of deep unpleasantness, some kind of suffering. It could be physical. For many people, it's kind of running into um, emotional patterns, not so much stories from life, but the way the mind is relating, the patterns that come up in relationship to actually doing our practice which is where they really catch us, actually. When it comes up about our past, it's really painful, and we suffer, but we can also see it easier. When it's about how we're relating to practice, self-judgment, for example, like when he talked about, when we don't see the agendas, we're just beating ourselves up. I want to be more concentrated. I want it. So what should I do? I should try harder. I should focus more. I should get more concentrated. We don't see, oh, that's just wanting. Then we do see, well, how can I get rid of the wanting? Well, if I got more concentrated, I could get rid of, you know, and we just cycle, cycle, and we all do this all the time. And because it's about what we're doing now, and it can be quite subtle, it's easy to miss. Until, you know, can, it, can, it can come up very subtly, and we don't notice it for half a day or a day, and then suddenly, you know, you feel like your head's in a vice, and you just go, what happened? I was just minding my own business, and now it's intense. It's amazing. And you'll go, oh, it's that judging mind again. I've seen it a million times, but it snuck up on me. It took a little turn. It moved into more subtlety. But anyway, my point is, many people have been saying this and really saying, oh, and I see, I'm really getting it this time. This is the practice, which, of course, makes me really happy to hear that. Uh, That, yes, it's concentration and samadhi is really important, and sometimes that's the direction of practice. Sometimes experiencing on a subtle level the seven factors of enlightenment is practice. Sometimes what practice is about is kind of the purification of a lot of memories and remorse. I mean, none of this we choose. It chooses, happens as it needs to happen. But many people, the, the people, then, different people have been saying that practice has suddenly taken this turn into really being in these habits with some awareness Enough awareness to see the habit, but we think it's not enough awareness because if we thought if it was enough awareness, it would just stop and be done, right? But the way we learn the suffering, this is, this is my particular rule of thumb, but 
It certainly seems to be true. The way we learn that these habits are suffering is by really suffering in them over extended periods with awareness the whole time, which just seems to make it worse. Okay, oh, God, I see it. I really see it. Okay, I really see it. Now I really get it. Okay, and then it goes away for a while, a week, a month, a year, and then you're back at the next retreat. So, oh, I forgot about this, but now, now I really see it. But anyway, my point being, my point being, this is why the so-called difficult times of retreat When we say it's so important, we're not just trying to be a cheerleader and get you through it. It's really the place where emptiness and compassion open up from. When people come and say, I'm really seeing, this is what it is. What's arising now? Just this is all there is. And this is the practice. It's not to get through the difficult to get to bliss. It's not to get through the mediocre to get to the difficult. It's not to get through anything to get anywhere else to be totally here without reference back or forward to anything. And when here, right now, is really suffering and difficult, this is just as much the place of awakening. And when it's difficult, and we really are bringing awareness to it, and it's messy awareness. It's one of my, I think I said this the other night, but I really, samsara is messy. Awareness of strong, difficult emotions is not going to be all nice and tidy. Oh, yes, anguish, anguish, (laughs) tightness, contraction. I note it, and it goes away. That's how they talk. It sounds so nice when they say it. Oh, anguish is like this, and then I'm just floating on a cloud. No, it's messy. It hurts. And when we notice it and drop into it, guess what? It's even more tender because we're not fighting it anymore. We're not resisting it. We're actually feeling it. But the feeling up with awareness is our protection. It's the opening into wisdom. So these difficult times of retreat are. That's what it's about. The Dalai Lama says, this is where compassion for ourselves begins and where it naturally moves into empathy with beings. And again, People have mentioned this, not just here, but all the time. Being, take grief. Grief's a good example. There's a personal story. You're feeling the grief. It's really strong, and you're starting to really be able to be with it and feel it, and there's the story and the grief, and you're being with it, and suddenly it gets, I don't know what, deeper. It changes. And even though your story's still there, nothing, you know, takes away the story. People can feel it's like a qualitative change, and you couldn't really call it suffering anymore. Because it's kind of, the way I can best say it for me, is like it's kind of changed into the grief of the world. It's kind of like this story is the representation of the grief of the world, and the natural movement of heart-mind with that is compassion. And compassion is one of the beautiful states. It's weird. It's weird because it comes out of suffering. I mean, you know, it's, it's... weird to our logical mind, but compassion is one of the beautiful states. And it feels qualitatively different. You're connected with the suffering, the grief, the sadness, the pain, but it stops being mine. It is mine also, but not only mine. And that what makes 
in, this is me talking, not, not from the suttas, but in my sense of what the, the vastness of all the Brahma Viharas, what makes them vast, what makes them beautiful, is exactly that there's not that constriction of me. It's the vastness of knowing we are the mid- middle of everything, whether it's suffering or whether it's joy. And that vastness is experienced as, as beauty, as peace, as ease, as Brahma-vihara, the divine abodes. That's what Brahma-vihara means. So how does, and coming back to our regular practice stuff, how does the difficult open into the wisdom of non-separation, the vastness of compassion. And really, again, it's only in this moment, it's completely by how we're meeting, how the mind and heart is meeting currently arising experience. Because as we know, as we all know now, because we're all now adepts, we all know that whatever's arising is out of our control, right? We're all on board with that in some way. I didn't cause this pain to arise. It's just happening, even if it's only intellectual. And even how we meet it isn't totally in our control. But the way that compassion and wisdom are developing is exactly that kind, clear, non-judging awareness is the expression of wisdom and the deepening of compassion right there. The pain comes up, it's, oh, burning is like this. It doesn't feel like any big thing. You know, you don't really know, oh, I'm developing compassion, isn't this great? No, burning is like this. But that moment, that moment, you know, as the Buddha said, and I'm sure it's been quoted here, you know, what we dwell and think about, that becomes the inclination of the mind. We've spent plenty of times dwelling and think about, I hate pain, you know, I don't like this pattern, I want to be a better person, yada, yada. That's what Winnie talked about. The moment of meeting, oh, pain is like this. Oh, incredible. Stabbing in the heart, wow, that's really painful. Feels like this. That is the expression of wisdom. That is the cultivation of compassion in that moment. Where else could it be? Nowhere else. Nowhere else. So I think Sally told this story about Upandita saying, she said it happened to Kamala, but it didn't. It happened to me. About Upandita saying some people talk to themselves. Because I was in a hugely judgmental frame of mind, which I didn't tell them. They can, these guys, they just know. I just was describing what was happening. And he was just basically saying, you know, wouldn't it be better? <laughs> it's a silent retreat. Wouldn't it be better not to talk to yourself in that tone of voice? You know? <laughs> and it's not critical. That was said, you know, with so much compassion. Because right here, how we're meeting present moment experience is where wisdom and compassion arise, are strengthened, and develop. And just what's happening now is all we need. We don't have to have some big, huge, you know, amazing experience. How we meet the conditions arising and vanishing is the path. Just small moments. It doesn't have to be huge, heart-cracking open, you know, Martin Luther King. We can just be very simple. 
don't know if I said that Sharon has a great line, to pay attention is to love. And by love, I don't mean, oh, you're so wonderful, I love you. Love, just that open-hearted friendliness, acceptance, non-separation. This is just how it is. To pay attention. Just to pay attention, steady, steady, steady. The wisdom of falling into everything and the compassion naturally open by themselves. We don't have to create it. We can't. We can't create wisdom, which should be a huge relief. That just through the steadiness of kind awareness, steady, 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 wisdom arises by itself. And people have noticed that. All of a sudden, you know, there's wisdom. But it was so effortless, I didn't do it. Exactly. Exactly. And can we trust that? We're only getting in the way. Uh, And noticing, too, when there is a time that, in your heart, in terms of compassion, some piece of information, some piece of suffering comes in from somewhere else. And you, you feel like you're really, oh, there's just that natural meeting compassion. Kind of, it's interesting, and this is in daily life, not just here, just to notice what, what are the qualities in the attention, in the mind, in the heart at that moment that makes the receiving and the compassion naturally come forth. I'll give you a simple example, which did this for me. It may not work for any of you, but... Again, I was listening to the radio. I like, I like listening to the, to the um, public radio because I get lots of interesting snippets of life. Anyway, I was talking to a man who had been a war correspondent for a long time for some network in, in, in Britain. But now he wasn't because he um, had discovered that he had something called Huntington's disease, which is a, a, a genetic disease a degenerative nerve disease, really bad. You get it, and it starts to manifest when you're in your mid-40s, and you just gradually, gradually, everything deteriorates, and you die, and it's genetic. So his father had had that, and he and his mother had, and his brother had to watch his father deteriorate and die in his you know, late middle age. And then you could get tested for it. It passed more through the male line. So his brother got tested and had it, and now his elder brother was in the middle stages of it. So then he got tested, and he has that gene. And as, in terms of medicine, if you have that gene, you're going to get this thing. And of course, they have no clue how to help it. So he was just talking about, so far he had no symptoms. And he was just describing this very clearly, you know. And for some reason, and this is the, more the interesting thing, because there's a million, you know, stories like this, was that what enabled me to just receive it in that way? I was just listening, eating my breakfast. You know how you do. I wasn't like, ah, just eating my breakfast and sort of listening. And then something, let me let it in. And, and then there's a different ways you can let it in. You know, you can let it in. Oh, my God, it's horrible, you know, and you're in despair. And I'm not calling that the wisdom of compassion. I'm calling that overwhelm. It's touching us, but then we, we close around it. I can't bear it, and we're in overwhelm. And maybe it's because it comes too close to something. We're not comfortable with feeling that pain in ourselves. We have to push it away. Or the other times we hear it, we go, oh, that's a shame. You know how we do that. Oh, yeah, that's really, that's really a shame. Poor guy. And we sort of mean it, but we're distracted. We're in our own little world. But this, I was just sitting there looking, and, and I realize now what, what opened it to me was the details he gave that allowed for empathy. And this is the detail he gave that really like, oh, I get what that would feel like. 
because I didn't know until then, I don't have a genetic disease that I'm aware of that you know is going to hit. And he's in his mid-40s, you know it's going to happen. He said, what? He said, now every time he goes out to the store, he stopped his job, he you know, wants to be with his kids and his wife. He, every time he goes out to the corner store to get the newspaper or something, every time he takes a walk, his mind kind of wonders. And he didn't say this heavy, just, this is just how it is. I always wonder, is this the time I'm going to first stumble? Is this going to be the day that I feel the first little tremor in my arm? I thought, wow, that, that went in. So my point with this is that, that that simplicity of describing experience, just it hit like a place where I could really be, have empathy. And the empathy is, oh, you know, you just feel how that could be. Without adding a whole big story, positive, negative, or anything, it's just, oh, yeah. In some way, we're all in that boat. But you don't have to go. That's already making too much story. But my sense is just that, how that just being present without expectation or story or self-reference, the empathy naturally arises. And without the empathy, we care. Oh, the poor guy, that's really a shame. We do care, but it's not really the tenderness for life, the compassion of the falling into the midst of everything. I read you this Mary Oliver poem. I read it a lot because I love it about how just simple mindfulness naturally opens wisdom and compassion amidst of everything. In Singapore, in the airport, I was just in Singapore in the airport, as a matter of fact, a darkness was ripped from my eyes. In the women's restroom, one compartment stood open. A woman knelt there, washing something in the white bowl. Disgust argued in my stomach, and I felt in my pocket for my ticket. A poem should always have birds in it. Kingfishers say, with their bold eyes and gaudy wings, rivers are pleasant, and of course trees. A waterfall, or if that's not possible, a fountain rising and falling. A person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. When the woman turned, I could not answer her face. Her beauty and her embarrassment struggled together, and neither could win. She smiled, and I smiled. What kind of nonsense is this? Everybody needs a job. Yes, a person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. But first, we must watch her as she stares down at her labor, which is dull enough. She is washing the tops of the airport ashtrays, as big as hubcaps, with a blue rag. Her small hands turn the metal, scrubbing and rinsing. She does not work slowly nor quickly, like a river. Her dark hair is like the wing of a bird. I don't doubt for a moment that she loves her life. And I want her to rise up from the crust and the slop and fly down to the river. This probably won't happen. But maybe it will. If the world were only pain and logic, who would want it? Of course it isn't. But neither do I mean anything miraculous, but only the light that can shine out of a life. I mean the way she unfolded and refolded the blue cloth, the way her smile was only for my sake. I mean the way this poem is filled with trees and birds.
Colette says, look long at what pleases you and even longer at what pains you. The wisdom and the compassion are the natural effects of our willingness to just be present with things as they are. And they're saying we don't have to, in fact, we can't create wisdom. I want to talk a minute about wisdom. There's three levels of wisdom that's talked about in the suttas. And the first level, and they're all useful, the first level is called um, sutta mayapanya, or wisdom that's heard, that's learned, the stuff that we read, stuff that you hear people say, you know, information that comes in. And that's useful, definitely useful to have correct or useful information. The second level of wisdom called chintamayapanya is really thinking, contemplating. You know, we take the information and we turn it over and we use our intelligence and really look at it and see, does this really seem to make sense? Also really useful. But for most of us, and certainly what I've learned, that's the level, basically, that we learn and that we really think this is where everything happens this middle level. But the third level, called bhavana, my opinion, bhavana is the word for mental cultivation used for meditation. Bhavana, my opinion, is really the level of insight, of deep transformative knowledge or wisdom, which arises one of the way through insight, through meditation. But we can use the second to kind of help us incline our attention, incline our memory into re-recognizing on the third level, on insight level, when we've actually experienced it. This is the way that Dingo Kensi Rinpoche talks about that. He says, talks about, you know, we we study, we learn the teachings, we contemplate, really important for all of us. So we were up here blob-blobbing, you know, every night. That's kind of giving you information that hopefully on some level meets your your inner um, intelligence and you see if it's helpful or not. But then he goes on to say, Dingo Kensi, on this third level, unless we also come to some inner realization by actually applying the teachers and mingling them with our minds... The knowledge remains theoretical. So we ponder deeply the meaning of the Dharma until it permeates our whole being. That's really what we're doing here. Pondering knowledge, paying attention, being with moment to moment until the meaning of the Dharma, the emptiness and the compassion, the freedom from clinging, permeates our whole being. And so in that way, it's not that... We don't create wisdom, and the compassion arises naturally, but we can, when we remember it, if it's useful, to incline the mind, and this is the second level of our contemplation, our understanding, our intelligence, we can incline the mind in the direction that deepens us into the third level of wisdom, of insight, of really mingling the teachings with our mind. So... And just to give a couple of examples, it takes, just takes patience. And at first it takes some insight into, which everyone has had, believe me, we're not talking world-blowing-apart insight, into 
the, the emptiness of separate self, the non-doing nature of things just happening, and the natural effect of recognizing that into our, our connectedness, our caring, our tender heart. Even just for a moment, we see that. Then when we're not actually contacting that insight, but it's a memory on the second level, that can still be useful. We can use our understanding, all the skillful means we have, just to incline our mind back in the direction of cultivating compassion rather than impatience. Cultivating compassion rather than self-hatred. And it just takes patience, patience. You know, Sister Chan Kong, the, the nun who's been working with Thich Nhat Hanh, she used to be Sister Fong ever since she was 16 in the Vietnam War, right? Now she's older. and They were working with social work, young people. They were basically... Kicked, they left the country during the war and couldn't come back because both sides hated them because they wouldn't take sides, you know. She's totally committed, I read her autobiography, from the time she's 16, to mindfulness, to compassionate action, but to activism. Living in France, she's still committed to this. She practices every day, but it's not like, oh, now I see, now I know, I don't have to do anything anymore. The compassion just flows, I never get caught. It's this quality of commitment to our understanding and patience. So she talks about, and this was a while ago, but you know, many years after she left Vietnam, where there was a period when a lot of um, nuns and monks and activists and artists were being arrested in Vietnam. And she was involved in organizing a letter-writing campaign to the government. And she said, Every time I received news of a new arrest, I became angry. And I knew I had to do walking meditation. Now, is that the first thing you would think of? I'm angry. They did this thing. It's so wrong. I'm so, well, I need to do walking meditation. Sometimes I would walk several hours in order to regain my calm. Sometimes I needed several days or even weeks to relax my heartbeat, knowing how unfairly the authorities have acted in arresting such a lovely monk, nun, or artist. I always waited until I felt serene before beginning any campaign. Thanks to this serenity, my words were gentle but firm, and people found it easier to cooperate. I love that. I use that all the time because it's the sense of knowing that compassion doesn't mean passivity. Compassion can mean real proactive action. But compassion married to wisdom means that compassion is all about the intention in our heart, in our mind, not about result. And this is, again, I know of intention, we've talked a bit about intention, but intention, as we've said, it's the seed of action, the seed of karma. And compassion, the way it shows up in the Eightfold Noble Path, is as the second wise action, wise aspiration, samasankapa. One of the three specific wise intentions are mentioned, which, is, which are um, renunciation, greed changes to renunciation, ill will transforms to loving kindness or metta, and cruelty and aversion transforms to compassion. It's one of the wise intentions. And again, when we're really cultivating, really inclining our mind towards compassion out of wisdom, out of our own experience. But, of course, until we're completely awakened, our experience is limited. You know, it goes back and forth. And there's times when 
when the compassion is just that natural flow, we're not really thinking about what's going to happen and what are they going to think and what can I do. It just arises spontaneously. But when we're not quite in touch with it as intention, we can easily get into an idea about how compassionate action should look or what I should do. And often, when we're not in touch with intention, our idea of the action being right or appropriate, we tend to go to where it gets the result we want. You know, that's how we judge actions. Does it get the result we want? And that's the one thing that's completely out of our control. And so in our practice, in our daily life, in, in every actions that we do, every way that we live, when we're working with inclining our heart and mind towards compassion and just noticing when it's present and cultivating. The cultivating isn't about what it looks like outside, from the outside in. The true compassion comes from the wisdom from the inside out. You know, And we can start from the inside out, really feel compassion. It takes Sister Fong and really want to do, for example, uh, a proactive action in the world. And we can start from it really feeling compassion and connection and caring. But it's so easy, isn't it? I mean, the world is so frustrating. The world is ambiguous. No matter how much we care and how much we might know, she says, I know they acted unfairly. It's so easy for us to slip into frustration, into trying to make the result come out a certain way. And when that doesn't happen, to get lost in either frustration or self-judgment or whatever. And it gets really, gets really carried away, you know, like, like people who are opposed to abortion because it's killing, and then they kill doctors who do abortion and don't see any kind of you know, disconnect in that. And that's gone both ways, by the way, and not just anti-abortion people. Someone recently who was pro-abortion killed someone else who I can't remember what the deal was, but anyway, it was going the other way. I mean, and it's like, it's easy when we're on the ideologue level, to still think that's compassion, right? But we're not in control of the externals. This when James was talking about the Idipadas last night, getting in tune with the fact that's the Dalai Lama's refrain, right? Our sincere motivation. That's what we can trust. That's our reward, and he should know, my God. There's a story, I read an interview with him that has really touched me for years, where you know, his whole, his whole deep commitment to nonviolence in terms of anything, but especially in terms of the Chinese overrunning Tibet and all. He's so deeply committed to nonviolence. But externally, it doesn't really seem to have helped at all. In fact, the Chinese have more and more overrun Tibet, and the culture is being more and more destroyed. So in this interview I read, some young Tibetans we're talking to him. He's like the old man now in his 70s. And they're saying, basically, I mean, maybe in a kind way, but they're saying, it's not working. It's not working. You know, you're on about nonviolence. OK, we respect it. But old man, it's not working. And he's so, this is a touch me, open, not I'm right. You know, the compassion, the falling into the midst of everything. He said, yeah, I hear you. Maybe it's not working. And then they said, in the interview said, and tears were running down as I said, but I cannot be any other way. That to me is incredible courage, because he's not also blocking it. He's hearing all the pain all around and saying, my motivation. 
as, as Martin, Dr. King said one time, you know, I refuse to become bitter. I refuse. Hatred must never be our motive. Kind of just taking a, a clarity of intention. Now, of course, we could drift into bitterness, but we recognize it with kind awareness. And in the recognition, it's its own transformation. We don't have to create the compassion, but just fall back into that willingness to be present. It doesn't mean being a doormat. So I just want to I just close with a story that inspired me about the vastness of wisdom and compassion and the ambiguity of life we just don't know. And this is a common story, but two days ago, Thursday, I was listening to the BBC in the morning, and they say it was the 20th year anniversary of the day that Nelson Mandela was released from prison. Which Sally talked about him the other night. So saying 20 years, and they played a little snippet on the radio so you couldn't see it, but the radio of, of the moment when he was released, and they said what they called his long walk to freedom from the jail cell, from where he was held into town. And you could just hear people cheering and the commentators talking, and then some parts of his speech um, in different languages, some in English. And it was so moving to me. And you could just feel, you could just feel in hearing it, the energy and how how much people were touched by it. Of course, having 20 years of knowing what's happened in the meantime, in hindsight, to see. Touched because, and then having seen that movie, Invictus, which I did see, was really interesting, to see how he came out of that, able to bear witness to so many years of personal suffering and so much suffering of the other people, not only the other people in jail with him, but of the whole country. And to have that breadth of vision which he pretty much seemed to carry through into his period of being the ruler, the breadth of vision of we're all in this together, that he could really seem to see the suffering wasn't only the black people and people of color, that through their hatred and separation, the Afrikaners and the white people were also suffering in a different way, you know, but that it was just one big mass of suffering, that the only... The compassion, so it isn't like weak, oh, it was a, it's really being able to be really straight, but to do what his heart and his wisdom told him to do in all different kinds of situations. He couldn't plan it all out. Like that movie was about using rugby, you know, as a way to kind of bring the races together because rugby was an Afrikaner white sport and blacks mostly hated it. In fact, when they would go to rugby, they wouldn't go to rugby matches, but when they'd hear of it, they'd they cheer for whatever team was playing, the South African team. You know, they just hated it as a kind of like the, the white ruler's sport. So Mandela decides to use rugby as a way to try and bring them together. You know, so he's very practical, using what's in his face, calling on people. And, and he got so much flack, you know, and called to meetings of all the other black rulers, like, what, are you crazy? We're not going to do this. And he would just stand up and say, no, this is really what we need to do. This is what we need to do. And he had so much stature because he wasn't coming from hatred or ideology, but really this depth of compassion that was fed by the wisdom of the interconnectedness. You know? And there was just you know, example after example after example of that. And it's inspiring, you know what, because for me, and I'm sure if not this, other things would be inspiring to you, because it touches what we know is true. 
as our potential as human beings. I mean, if it's just so different, oh, he's amazing, but he's some kind of freak of nature. I mean, our intellectual mind might say that. But the inspiration, which brings brightness, which brings energy, which brings vigor, which brings willingness to do, is because it's touching on that deep wisdom and compassion that's the essence of of what's true. Somewhere down there, we know this. We've all glimpsed it. And I think the reason for me, I love just looking at huge figures, you know, people, famous people, or people you hear on the news that manifest this, is because it helps us to trust it more instead of believing our little small minds, our little separate self. So I just want to end with a short quotation from Nisargadatta Maharaj, one of our favorites. Once you can say with confidence, born from direct experience, I am the world, the world is myself. You are free from desire and fear on the one hand and become totally responsible for the world on the other. The senseless sorrow of humankind becomes your sole concern. So let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.